3: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of August fifteenth, two 2016. On today's show, we'll talk about Usain Bolt's third consecutive win in the 100 meters at the Olympics, and what world records by South Africa's Wade Van Niekerk and Ethiopia's Olmaz Ayana tell us about the limits of human performance on the track. We'll also discuss Katie Ledecky, Michael Phelps, and why Americans are so dominant at swimming. And Slate's Features Editor, Jessica Winter, will join us to discuss the complicated legacy of Bella and Marta Caroli, the Romanian defectors who led the United States to gymnastics glory, and have also been accused of physically and psychologically tormenting the young athletes that they coach. Joining me in Washington, D.C. this week, a man we managed to get back from Fort Wayne, Indiana, despite the best efforts of the Fort Wayne Chamber of Commerce. And United Airlines. <laughs> it's Stefan <laughs> Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And this is a no air travel complaint zone on this podcast. <laughs> Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Also joining us is the guy who's been joining me on our Hang Up and Listen Olympics Extra podcasts, a writer for ProPublica and the author of the book, The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, David Epstein. Hey, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. And I think we might be getting a special guest appearance from Mike Pesca, the host of The Gist. Actually, not really much of a guest appearance. He'll be on for pretty much the entire show, except for the first segment. But listen up for Mike Pesca. He'll show up at some point. Um, In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, our intern Laura Wagner will join us to talk about whether the U.S. women's national team should dump Hope Solo. Yes. And what else we can learn? Thanks, Laura. What else we can learn from the squad's quarterfinal loss to Sweden at the Olympics? You can sign up for Slate Plus to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts. And if you do sign up, you'll get a free two-week trial. Get it at slate.com/hangoutplus. On Sunday in Rio, Usain Bolt raced past Justin Gatlin to win the 100-meter dash at the Olympics in 9.81 seconds. Here's what Bolt said in his trackside interview afterwards. Well, you Usain, uh, your first step in the triple-triple is complete. Your thought on this historic win in the 100 meters?
1: Well, it was good. I spent better. i tell you the truth. But I think the the fact that we had to come back out so quick, it takes a lot of your leg. Like, because I felt superb in the, in the semifinals, uh, but the finals... Took a little time, but I got it done, and that's the key thing. Going back to the start, how did you see this race develop from the beginning until you crossed the line as another champion? No, I knew, I knew, I knew uh, from
3: the semifinals that I would have won because I could tell. I felt good. I felt smooth. Uh, I knew Justin Gatlin was going to get it started as always. He always had a signature start. So all I have to do is stay cool and get back into the race at sixty. All right. So he knew he was going to win, <laughs> and he expected better, despite the fact that he's now the first. Man ever to win three uh, gold medals in the 100 meters. I love this guy. Um, He ran a 9.86 easily in the semifinals, as he said in that interview, grinning as he eased through the finish line. Nothing in the final, either him racing past Gatlin or just winning the 100-meter dash at the Olympics, was really all that impressive by Bolt standards or all that novel. But damn, was it fun to watch. Uh, Dave, what did you see in that race?
4: I mean, first of all, to add to, you know, the list you just gave, he was also injured like six weeks ago and didn't compete in Jamaican trials and had to get like a special exemption to come to the Olympics, which for most people you would basically count them out. And then like two weeks later, he was like, great, I'm in perfect shape. I'm probably going to run 9-6. Everything's fine, Um, which is pretty incredible. I mean, to watch that race, he was really under pressure. He did not get out very well. I think since he had he's bolt since he busted out in beijing in 2008 when he was slapping his chest and everybody started to get to know who he was he's 18 and 0 in olympics and world championships since then in the 100 the 200 and the 4x100 with one disqualification though in 2011 in 100 and since then he's been a slower reactor to the gun and i think it's because you only get one false start and so he doesn't you know if you think you're going to win if you can run faster than everybody you don't want to burn yourself
5: by anticipating the start and getting a false start. And so he got a slow start. To me, he looked like he was one of the slowest. When I was watching, I sort of said out loud, like, I think he's in last out of the blocks.
4: Yeah, his reaction speed was terrible. And I think that, and that wasn't always the case. He was never the top one, but I think it's since that false start sort of trauma that he had. And so to stay cool the way he did, and even to kind of start shaking his finger before he got to the finish line, I mean, he was like a, he wasn't far ahead. It's just... It's amazing how cool he is under pressure, and he wasn't always that way. If you go on YouTube and look at him as a 15 year old winning World Juniors, which is an under 19 competition, so that's a boy versus a man, you know, he's like bouncing on his feet and like looking around. He looks super nervous. So, this isn't just Usain Bolt as he's always been. He's just, he's managed to attain a, a, another level of speed and calm.
5: I think we need to play the videos of Bolt and uh, Michael Phelps at 15 and see what <laughs> tells we can, we can find there. Yeah. Um, let, let's, can we talk a little bit about Bolt's? willingness to not go for records in these races. Because it, it, it seems like there is a psychological thing going on with Usain Bolt at this point, And that is that he knows that winning is what is going to establish his immortality yeah. in this sport. Because it was clear again on Sunday night that Bolt was decelerating a little bit before the end. He Steph- knew he had it won. And yeah. as you said, he was wagging his finger and deciding Stephen,
3: that we, we're, we're done here. You say it's clear now, but the first race... Where everyone knew who Usain Bolt was was the 100 right. meters in Beijing in 2008, where he slowed down more than anyone has ever slowed down at the end of a race and set a world record. Wait, so the question for me is, why does he
5: do this? It's only a 10 second race or a <laughs> 19 second race. Just run the damn last six tenths of a second and see how fast you go. Is there is there some something there? And, or are these athletes so finely tuned that Bolt knows I'm not running 9.55? I'm not going to break the world record. So, what's the difference if I run 9.8 or 9.71? 9, I, I mean, I, I think he does know that he's probably not going to say, I, you know, it's,
4: I'm so loath to say this before the 200. And, like, right. Because he's better at the 200 than he is at the 100. So, who knows what's going to happen? But, you know, it's appeared that he's been past his peak since about 2010. And so he hasn't threatened his own record since then. So I think that's the case. And I also think, you know, here was a guy in 2008 when he did the turn to the crowd and beat his chest and broke the world record. Think of how audacious that was at the time because people didn't know who he was. It wasn't like, you know, he was the LeBron James and he was he was doing this. But I think he's always kind of realized that there's – there. You know, there's more. Le- first of all, he just likes to have fun, basically. If you saw his press conference where he went out with samba dancers, um, to their own surprise. <laughs> and, one,
5: and a Norwegian journalist rapping?
4: Yeah, it's, you know, like we, we might see his records get broken before we see his press conference records get broken. <laughs> um, but I think he just realizes there's, there's more. To, first of all, there was a quick turnaround in this race, so I don't think he was even going to try to set his record. But I think he put the records where he wants them. He's fine with that. And now he realizes that it's about winning and, and being Usain Bolt on the track, basically.
3: All right, so maximizing human performance is kind of what we want to see in these races, right? There's yeah. this Mondo track. I'm giving them good product placement. Everyone says it's the fastest track ever. You know, Everything that the athletes do prepares them to run as fast as possible, except maybe Usain Bolt's Shoes, Bolt. clothing. Sure. But then, <laughs> Hairline. given that, why are they running... The final just like so soon after the semifinal, why would they not do everything that they possibly could, Dave, to ensure that we would get the best possible performance, not just the best possible time, but make sure that every athlete is primed to run as fast as they possibly could and not just give them like an hour and 20 minutes.
4: Yeah, I mean, they should have. And usually a championship meets, they do. And so I think that was just a bad scheduling decision. I, I don't know what's behind that. If it's, you know, they've had issues with um, selling tickets and things like that. Maybe they wanted to to throw in a semi and a final, both with Usain Bolt in one session to, you know, as an inducement. But I think it's just a bad scheduling decision.
3: So we were talking before we, the tape was rolling about this idea that Bolt wins these races because he slows down less than his competitors. This was written about in the Wall Street Journal. This was kind of the key to Otto Bolden, the NBC comment, commentator, what he was saying and his explanation of of why and how Bolt wins. But you say that that is just a total myth.
4: Yeah, it's not true. I mean, he slows down slower than some people and he slows down faster than some other people. But if you look at like his race... In Berlin, which was the fastest one ever, where he set the world record in the 100, his Tyson Gay got second place. And Bolt's, like I've plotted this race, of course, the splits at every 20 meters, and Bolt's deceleration is exactly parallel to Tyson Gay's. It's just coming from a higher top speed. They get to top speed at exactly the same spot. They decelerate exactly the same proportionally. It's just that (laughs) Bolt's decelerating from a faster top speed.
3: Wait, so you're saying Bolt wins because he runs faster than the other guys? That's,
4: that's right. I know that's a big surprise. That he's, <laughs> yeah, he, just, he covered a 20-meter span in 1.61 seconds in that race, which is the fastest ever recorded. And the idea that his, his slower deceleration is the key to him winning is, never mind like any of the graphs, is insane if you think about his race in Beijing where he turned around, started talking to the crowd while he had 15 <laughs> meters left. Dece- if you see, if you plot that, he he decelerated a heck of a lot faster than everybody else and still won by daylight.
5: I think Bolt does this so that people will forever discuss how fast he could have run had he not slowed down.
4: Also, if he had said that, like, pole vaulters are famous for this. They'll break the world record by a millimeter every time and then right. stop, because then you can break it again a bunch of times. So the Beijing also gave Bolt, you know, I think he was just acting in the moment, because I think that's how he is, but it also gave him a chance to then the next year really having, you know, shatter the record again. And it's that many more YouTube clips that I get to watch over and over.
3: Yeah, Stefan, if you watch the clips from Berlin and I had like an absolutely fantastic time watching all of these races last night, um, working with my colleague, Mr. Craggs, on putting together a ranking of Bolt's best races. You can't watch the Berlin 100 and 200 from the 2009 World Championships and say that anybody could try harder or run faster in any race and so it's funny right because in every other sport we're like man this guy just cares about his numbers you know that would be something that we'd criticize someone for you're Hmm. right that it's obviously ridiculous to like you know say you can't run it's not a it's not a question of like you know effort like obviously it would it would not cost him that much to run for you know, five tenths to of a smile. second more. Right. But he's done everything. He's won the races and he has the records if you just add all of you know his performances together. Right. And
5: doesn't that enhance who he is and what his legacy will be? Because we won't think of Usain Bolt as a robotic sprinter who did exactly what his coach told him to do from the starting gun to the tape. He's someone who who claimed his own personality
3: both during and after races. Well, it's just so ballsy. I mean, yeah. if if he didn't win every single time, he would get killed. And he just has so few. I mean, that's the thing that really jumps out to you if you go and try to and watch all of his races. You can do it in a couple minutes and <laughs> there are so few of them. I mean, he's been the best in the world for 8 years. I mean, it's like it's almost like a boxer how like rare that that they fight, but just given the small amount of data points here, like the risk that he takes and not going, you know, all the way through the tape, it's just like the biggest risk that any athlete could possibly take. And the fact that he still manages to win every time is just so awesome.
4: <laughs> and after, after his Beijing race,
3: where there was an initial sort of
4: from some people in the track world saying, oh, he had disrespected the sport. And I remember being in—I was in the mix zone in Beijing after the race— and all the reporters were asking the other athletes in the race, like if they felt disrespected, and they didn't. But that was a thread that could have caught fire, right? And I think mm-hmm. the fact that Bolt was like, you know, I was winning, I can do whatever I want, and if I lose, I'm the one that pays the price. I think his reaction to that kind of stemmed that, because that's just sort of who he is. And I think it's interesting to look at that in in, in kind of light of, you know, the criticism Gabby Douglas is getting, but. That's a
3: different story, I guess.
5: That's <laughs> well, it, it reaffirms some sort of the, the what sports are great for, that here's the greatest sprinter of all time who's also confident enough to exude joy while he's doing it. And that's fantastic, and that's what's enhanced our interest in this. Can we segue a little bit now to records and human performance, David's specialty? Um, yeah, Bolt, Bolt set the, the world record 9.58 in 2009. And when we talk about the limits of human performance, Dave, I mean, where do you see the limits in sprinting? I mean, hundredths of a second are not very much. So you can always say, well, if it's 9.58, it can go to 9.57, and then it can go to 9.56 or it can go to 9.55. But at some point, there are limits to physiologically what humans in their current construction are capable of.
4: Yeah. And the, the other thing is, I think people tend to overestimate like how solid records are you know this is the best anyone's been able to do when you really think about how many opportunities the best people get under the right conditions where they're fully healthy trained right with you know the fastest track sort of thing it's actually startlingly few so they those don't come around very often so the reason that Usain Bolt is is faster than everyone else is not because he moves his leg faster in fact he moves his legs through the air at the same speed that you or I would if we were sprinting It's that when he puts his foot down on the ground for about 0.08 seconds, he puts five times his body weight worth of force into the ground, whereas like a high school sprinter might be half that or something. And so it's how much force can you put into the ground in as little time as possible, and that's limited by how quickly your muscles can contract, basically. So we know that's the ultimate limiter. Where exactly that's going to limit us has a little bit to do with the track surface and how much energy that returns to you and things like that. I think Bolt is clearly ahead of his time. In many cases, I think we might see surfaces and things like that making a bigger difference now.
3: I thought that the point you just made, Dave, was super interesting, and I hadn't thought about it before, that with these top track athletes, the biggest incentive and the thing that will bring the most kind of reward to them, both psychically and monetarily, is winning at the Olympics, you know, to some degree at the World Championships. And so you have these guys peaking for these big events that come along very rarely. But you could imagine a a hypothetical world where the thing that would bring the most reward psychically and monetarily was setting records. And in that case, wouldn't there be more opportunities for them to set records? Yeah, and I mean, they do have huge incentive to break
4: records. And depending on the country and and the event, they have financial incentives to do that too, which is, again, also why the pole vaulters will do it, you know, like one millimeter at a time to get a record bonus. But, you know, for something like the 400 meters and thinking about Van Nieker, there's not much, you know, in a marathon to try to get a record, you can attempt to have pace rabbits, although some marathons don't allow that and all sorts of things like that. But in the 400, everyone's in their own lane. You can't have a pace rabbit. So there's really not a ton you can do to set up a record attempt other than trying to have the best competition there, basically. Um,
3: So, yeah. So Van Niekerk ran a 43.03. He's South African, 24 years old. He won at the World Championships last year, which was kind of his Bolt-esque announcement of his greatness. But in this 400 race, this was touted as the greatest 400-meter field ever because you have the two reigning Olympic gold medalists at the distance, LaShawn Merritt of the U.S. and Karani James from Granada. And then you have the guy who set the world record, Wade Van Niekirk. Van Niekirk ran from the outside lane, lane eight. He ran a time, um, one of these fabled times, you know, Michael Johnson's 43.18. He crushed it um, by, you know, a tenth and a half. And a question I had for you, Dave, is, you know, nobody had run nearly that fast from lane eight where you have to run the really kind of long curve. But my question is like, the only reason guys are in lane 8 in a final is if they've run a slower time in the heat. So it seems like there's probably just a selection bias there.
4: That, that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, lane 8, it has the softest curve. So lane 8 should potentially be the fastest. It's just that the 400 is one of these events where you have to, you can't be full out sprinting because as we know from guys decelerating in the 100, you can only hold that for like 40 meters at very top speed, so you have to like ride like 98 to 99% of your top speed. So guys are coming through the 200, you know, maybe uh, within a half second or less of what they can run the 200 in, but if you go just over the red line, your race is done. And so they tend to like to be able to see some people outside of them, so that can sort of help them pace. And so you usually see the best are in a middle lane, but a middle outside, you know, like a five, six type thing.
5: But isn't there such a calibration in what runners do and how they know each stride, each um, distance that they're covering, how much they're accelerating versus decelerating and at what point. Isn't that so baked into how they run that it shouldn't matter whether there's anybody to your left or right?
4: You would think, but it, it seems to matter a little
5: bit. Like we're more
4: learning more and more how much the central nervous system has to do with sort of how your performance works. And, and again, it is pretty baked in. If you, if you think about in the scheme of things, we're talking about a big difference here being a 10th of a second or two tenths of a second. Um, So yes, you would, but it turns out that those things seem to make a difference anyway.
3: I thought that James and Merritt after the race, just reading the quotes were super thoughtful and like really kind to Van Niekerk who just won the race. And this was one of those instances, either of you guys if you wanna chime in, where people just seem to like really be happy to have been witness to something yeah. they didn't think would would happen. A guy in lane eight going out, seeming to cross that red line and just never slowing down. And they were just like <laughs> I, I can't remember which which one it was, whether it was Merritt or James. I think it was Merritt. And They're like, "Where did you win the race?" They're like, "When he ran forty-three zero, that's when he when he ran the race." They're just like applause. Like, there's nothing you can really do, and it was cool to read that they thought that they were witnessing history too just as we did. You know, and I think that that points to how athletes view what they do and the disconnect between what the how
5: the public views what they do. And the other element of this is when an athlete thinks that something untoward is happening, i.e. doping, you don't get that sort of gracious yeah witness type reaction. But otherwise, athletes are incredibly sensitive to the vagaries of their sport. I remember being at the Winter Olympics once um, and covering the downhill and I remember asking, I think it was Bodie Miller, who said, yeah, you know, we come down the hill and then you turn around and you look at the clock and there's nothing else you can do. You are running against yourself. You're running against the race. And there's a respect for that process that these guys know that, that that they are competing against something that's not entirely... In their control. If another athlete has a brilliant run, they respect that brilliant run.
4: Yeah. No. Totally. I completely agree. And in this case, also, I think it probably maybe it takes some sting out of not winning. Everyone knew Van Niekerk was, you know, a world champion and and a, a top competitor, and he runs that fast. And you're not like, man, he ran a time that I've run before. I could have won that. It's like, you know, it was like when Bolt when he broke out in Beijing, and I remember Darvis Patton, in a, in a very thoughtful American runner, who was in that race. And was just being asked, you know, by a million different journalists as he goes down the mix zone, like, what do you have to say about it? What did it feel like to be behind it? And he kept, like, you could see his progression of trying to, like, come up with it as he went from journalist to journalist through this, you know, it's like a Disneyland, like, waiting in line. You, like, weave back and forth. And he was like, man, I think he's a video game cheat code. And that, like, became the quote, you know? Because he was like, he was processing it, too, the same way everyone else was. Yeah. And so I think it's it's it wasn't that feeling of, like, gosh, if I had executed, I could have gotten him. It was like, no. You know, you got to respect it.
5: Yeah, and when they respect it, they really respect it, and they appreciate witnessing something that they wish they could have done and have have obviously come very close to doing.
3: Yeah, and they're fans of the sport. Yeah. Really, they most, most of them are. All right, so if we put these guys on a continuum, Usain Bolt's records were incredibly hard to believe just because of the times. You know, the times were just absurd, but... They were hard to believe, I feel like, in a believable way, just because of physiologically how much different he was than the other runners. And kind of as, as what Dave has been explaining, just that physical difference, you could just sort of talk yourself into it. And, you know, I'm not going to make the mistake of saying that anyone in track is clean or isn't clean. But if you look at Usain Bolt, you can believe it's it's believable. Then you have somebody like Wade Van Niekerk, who sets this record, you know, breaks Michael Johnson's, you know, nobody thought it was unbeatable, but it stood for a very long time, a 1999. Couple, couple decades almost. Um, and he gets asked immediately after the race, what do you say to people who say you're on drugs? And he just says, you know, I'm clean. And then you have Almazayana, the Ethiopian runner, who runs the 10,000 meters In 29 minutes, 17.45, beating a record set by a a woman who's known to be a doper who was a part of the Chinese state-run doping system in the 90s. Nobody had come anywhere close at all in you know decades to getting at that record. Like nobody had come within 20 seconds of it, right, Dave? And she broke it by 14 seconds. Yeah. And so after that race, it wasn't just the media; it was her competitors. Um, Sarah Lottie, a Swedish runner, says, I don't really believe that she's 100% clean. I mean, she just said it. It's too easy for her. We see no facial expression. Um, Ayana was asked, and she said, my training and my doping is Jesus. And so I think we have a pretty clear kind of demarcations here of what's considered to be a good record, a clean record, and what isn't. And do you think that these perceptions were fair, Dave?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think they're unfortunate. And this is a sport where people care about doping, right? And so I like, I always, I ask people who if someone who doesn't care about the sport makes some comment, you know, but they're an NFL fan. I'm like, well, you watched the Super Bowl, yes, but you didn't know that the MVP of the Super Bowl was suspended for a doping violation They reportedly included conspiring with his urine collector, right? People, People don't even know that because they don't care about it. And this is a sport where they care about it. And so Unfortunately, it's sort of earned that kind of skepticism. And I think the thing with Ayana was if you take away the one, right, the, the, the previous 10K record that, that a Chinese woman set, like in the distance, the amount she set the record by without that one performance is just completely insane. So you're so far away from any sort of thought to be clean performances. And the sport has earned that skepticism. That said, I think we'll see going for the first time ever, I think we have some in advanced anti doping technology that actually the the dopers aren't able to like catch up with overnight. So if she, she keeps performing this well, you know, I, I think there's a good chance she'll get caught if she's dirty. And and just to to try to see it from a little bit of an optimistic side, I do think the women's ten k is another example of a race that didn't have a lot of chances for records to be set. Basically, mm-hmm.
5: the other uh, factor here is that Ethiopia has had one of the worst drug testing programs in the world. Um, they've been sanctioned. Athletes have been kicked out. They, I think their testing facilities had a zero rating from the World Anti-Doping Agency. Um, so it Is only, that of course, adds to the suspicion um, and legitimizing that suspicion.
3: Maybe it was a zero on a scale of zero to negative 10. You don't know. True. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you feel, Stefan, about just, I mean, this isn't a new topic, but every time a record gets set, that's the first question that's asked. Mm-hmm. Every time a record gets set, that is the suspicion that's raised.
5: And I think that's fair, but it, it is selective. I mean, Katie Ledecky is breaking some records by a lot.
3: Well, that's, that's our next one. The that continuum. is our
5: next one. That is the continuum. But, and I think it is very specific to event, to nationality to the competition itself, to the percentage that a record is broken by, and to the historical context of that race. Um, the, the 10K, when we know that a record was tainted to begin with, that was set 20-plus years ago, as, as is the case with the 10, 000, the women's 10,000 meters, and it's then broken by an enormous amount, you know, the ESPN538.com uh, did a piece about this, and one suggestion that was made to Ross Tucker, the uh, the sports physiologist from South Africa, was that maybe the track was short. Maybe that's <laughs> why she broke the record by so much.
3: All right. You may notice a slight difference in sound quality here because we are talking to Dave on a slightly different telephonic apparatus. But here is my last question for this segment, and that is about Wade Van Niekerk. He is the first man ever to run under 10 seconds in the 100, under 20 seconds in the 200, and under 44 seconds in the 400. And that's kind of silly because he almost just ran under 43 seconds in the 400. Usain Bolt apparently told him he was going to set the record in the 400. He's got this 74-year-old great-grandmother of a coach. My question for you, Dave, is is this guy going to be the next... Bolt, like international superstar, he doesn't seem to have the same bravado that Bolt does, but that's just because no other human does. But yeah. what do you what do you see for him in the next couple of years?
4: Yeah, I don't think there's, you know, I, I wouldn't predict anyone being like Bolt in, in pretty much any sport. Um, but he does seem to have kind of a nice disposition. He goofed around with Bolt a little bit last night after they both won. But I think to to really go to elevate himself to kind of superstar status, even aside from the personality stuff, he'll have to go beyond even crushing the 400 meters and maybe challenge Bolt's record in the 200. He's, a, he's an excellent 200 runner. He's still young. If he got within sort of sniffing distance of Bolt's 1919, which I think is considered one of the strongest records on the track, you know, I think that's sort of the excitement of, wow, can he actually break one of Usain Bolt's records? Because nobody has.
3: Terms apply. All right, let's transition to swimming, where the US won 33 medals, 16 of them gold. Australia had 10. So this was a Ledecki esque lapping of the fields in swimming for the United States. Katie Ledecki broke her own record in the 800 meters by a couple seconds, which was one of several records set by US team members. I'm going to welcome in. A special guest for this uh, segment, Mike Pesca. Hello, Mike. Oh, hello. How are you? American swimming expert, Mike Pesca. So, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, it's been really a lifelong dream of mine to to have you. So, uh, what do you think of kind of the difference of how we talk about track records versus swimming records, and kind of what we saw in the pool for these uh, great Americans?
1: Me, the special guest. You're asking the special guest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I, sus- I, we're suspicious of track records because of doping. We're suspicious of swimming records because of the changes of the pool, and also I think I don't know. Maybe this is just me talking for myself. But maybe we're a little suspicious of swimming. Swimming seems invented (laughs) to maximize Americans' medals. When the Soviet Union was beating the Americans, uh, the Olympics just started adding more and more swimming events. And that's fine. It's great that if you're a good butterflyer and if you're a good freestyler and if you're a good breaststroker, you get to do all those strokes at all those distances. It would be terrible to discriminate. Against someone who is a good two hundred meter breaststroker and not allow them to do the four hundred, but the consequence is that there are all these all these medals available, and the United States wins them. And it does seem the times, I mean, the time of Ledecky beating not just the whole pool, but that yellow line of her last world record, that was breathtaking. But it seems intrinsically less breathtaking per event in the pool than it does on the track, although the
3: totality of what Michael Phelps did can't be overstated. The dude is freaking amazing. Well, we're suspicious of doping and swimming when it's foreigners who are setting the records like... Katinka Hoshu or like Yi Shi Wen or, or Sun Yang of China. Um, but is there any kind of explanation, Dave, that you've seen that you find persuasive about why Americans are so good at swimming?
4: Right now, part of it is because we have Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky. It's like putting Usain Bolt on a relay, you know, it, it wins you a lot more medals. But, I mean, we're far ahead all time of the next closest country in total medals, which I think is Australia. And I think a lot of that is actually the spread of sort of youth swimming, which has become a huge industry in the U.S. with a lot of quite good coaches and a lot of facilities. And I think that in itself, especially in a big population, gives a pipeline that is just vastly superior, the number of people engaged in any kind of swimming or who learn how to swim compared to almost any other country. Basically, Australia does that same thing on a small, but with 20 million people, and we do it with 320 million people.
3: Yeah, Stefan, I mean, what do you make of Ledecki in particular, somebody who kind of came out of nowhere in 2012 as a 15 year old, has seemed to improve when that's not necessarily a given? If you look at Missy Franklin, mm-hmm. um, you know, she kind of fell off the map. Um, there are kind of physiological explanations. We talked a little bit about this on one of the extra episodes last week. And, uh, you know, the also the kind of mental like explanations. but There's also,
5: There are also socioeconomic explanations for why U.S. swimming and someone like Katie Ledecky can succeed as much as she does. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a rich kid sport for the most part. Um, it, it is not penetrated into deeply urban sectors. In order to swim, you need resources to travel. It takes a lot of time out of a, out of a kid and a parent's life. Um, at the pool, getting to the pool, getting home from the pool. Katie Ledecki through high school, was ferried back and forth by her mom. She only has her, her learner's permit. She could not even drive herself to practice when she was 17 and 18 years old. There is a, an economic aspect to why the U.S. is able to do this, because these kids are able to train um, at, a, at a high level and with the frequency and the money that's needed to support that. I asked a parent of two competitive swimmers, a friend of mine, why. And she thinks it's it's partly the way that America has come up with training programs for swimmers, too. This sort of combination with obsessive rigor and sort of sensible discipline.
3: Do you think, Dave, that swimming is really all that different from a sport like tennis? Where in the U.S. there are a lot of kids that play. It is kind of a rich kid's sport, although the Williams sisters are an obvious exception to that. But it's expensive. We've got a huge population. We've got a lot of training programs established and a good history of it. But the rest of the world's caught up and passed the U.S. and tennis. Like, what's the difference? I think
4: swimming is still expanding in the U.S. And I think we have some of the Olympic successes to thank for that. Everything from Michael Phelps to focus on helping kids learn to swim so they don't drown are all pluses. We like to think that, you know, we're finding really the very best in the world and doing everything the very best, but the fact is most people in the world don't have a legitimate chance to find out if they're really good at almost any sport, basically. And so things like our college pipeline and and youth swimming competitions and things like that are just a massive advantage compared to most countries.
1: And just think of it this way. Everyone who's fast knows they're fast. And someone says, hey, come out for the track team. And and if you're fast at another sport, the track coach will say, do this in the spare time. So there's just a huge democracy with uh, with track, um, even with events associated with track, long jump, we've all jumped. How many people have like breaststroke greatness within them and will never know it? Even the, you know, don't drown programs that you're talking about, Dave, they would never say, hey, here's a breaststroke. And of the population of a the world that even gets a chance forget like uh okay let's look at the time horizon it's going to take you this many months and this much money and maybe a second mortgage like the population of the world that ever gets shown the breaststroke is highly concentrated in america i would
5: guess yeah except that, that and i think the other factor mike is that in wealthier suburban communities Every little kid has taken to learn how to swim when they are two years old or even younger. You know, it's mommy and me in the pool, baby in the pool. And so if a kid really takes to water, he's taking to water, she's taking to water at age three. So you do have this early ability to identify children that like this.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Simone Manuel, who won the 100-meter freestyle First black American woman to win individual gold at the Olympics. Um, I'd like to play the clip of her post race interview.
6: This is significant. You are the first African American woman to medal in an individual event in swimming. What does that mean to you, Simone? Yeah, it means a lot. I mean, this medal is not just
1: for me, it's for. A whole bunch of people who have came before me and have been inspiration to me, Maritza, Colin, and it's for all the people after me who can't who believe they can't do it. And I just want to be inspiration to others that
6: you can do it.
3: So the thing that's so striking about that interview is when you think about black pioneers in sports, you think about something, you know, for all of us, you're like, that happened before I was alive. The people that she mentioned, Maritza McClendon and Colin Jones, they were doing their like (laughs) pioneering in the 2000s. You know, Mike, there's this incredibly fraught history around, you know, African-Americans and swimming in this country. But when talking about the talent pool here, you can't, you know, exclude that part of it. Oh, yeah. And uh, this would seem to argue for, in a few
1: ways, continued American dominance.
3: You'd have to think so, right? I mean, Rowdy Gaines on NBC was just so, like— thrilled with this victory because he's like, it's <laughs> well, g- it's going to be Green great is, for
1: the sport. Rowdy Green is th- so thrilled with <laughs> everything. <laughs> Every lunch. So yeah. thrilled, <laughs> thrilled lunch. Full stop.
3: <laughs> but you could just hear this like kind of delight and, yeah. you know, our lily white sport, like the lily whitest of lily white sports is finally has this kind of black woman hero. And just thinking about what that could mean if Michael Phelps had an effect than what might Simone Manuel do. And the
1: goalie on the U.S. water polo
3: team, too. Yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's end it there, and we will say goodbye to the great, heroic David Epstein, writer for ProPublica and author of The Sports Gene. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me.
0: The US
3: women's gymnastics team won gold in what was one of the more fate accomplish results of the Rio Games. So too was Simone Biles' victory in the individual all-around. Those golds have reflected very well on the U.S. national team coordinator Marta Carolli, who is retiring after this Olympics and is being feted, along with her husband, Bella, as being the driving forces behind the absolute domination of the U.S. women in world gymnastics. In 1981, the Carolis defected from Romania, where they had coached the legendary Nadia Comaneci, among many others, and set up shop in Houston. Bella first rose to prominence as the individual coach of Mary Lou Retton, the U.S. Uh, first individual all-around winner at the 84 games in L.A., The Carolis very quickly assumed leadership of the national team apparatus. In 1996, when the U.S. won team gold, Bella carried the injured Kerry Strug to the medal podium, creating an indelible image of a cuddly coach and a wounded athlete. But Bella also had a reputation for allegedly abusing his athletes physically and psychologically. Marta, who became the national team coordinator in 2001, was known as being strict, but has been widely viewed as less abrasive and combative than her husband. A piece published in the New York Times last week read, he was the boisterous cheerleader, the emotional one. She was the quiet technician who knew exactly how to tweak a gymnast to make her great. After they won the team final, the U.S. women uh, this year talked to NBC's Bob Costas about the marta carrolli experience you know you've mentioned marta a couple of times and for the one percent of the audience that might not realize marta
1: and her husband bella Caroli, have been associated with international gymnastics going all the way back to nadia Comaneci, and then bringing uh, their expertise to the united states and this is marta's last go round as the coordinator of the US team. So you're the final five in the sense that you're the final group of five because it goes to four as we've explained, but most importantly, because it's the last time for Marta.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. she's a legend. Yes. Yes. she's a gymnastics god That's yes. or, yeah.
3: or goddess yes.
2: Yes. Yes. but I'm sure if she sees one
0: sleigh of crack in the team she might be back Yes.
3: <laughs> joining us now is Slate's features editor Jessica Winter who wrote about the Caroli's legacy for Slate last week Jessica's the author of the fantastic novel Break in Case of Emergency which I believe has a reference to a bulk so it's really a sports book Hi, Jessica.
6: Thank you, Josh. I'm so happy to be here. And I need to take this opportunity to thank Mike Pesca for finding a sports-related error in my book, literally the day it went into final production. I am forever, forever grateful to you.
3: So, Jessica, you could hear in that clip that there is this kind of, like, frivolity or, like, laughter or joking around the idea that Marta Caroli is so tough on them and so strict that maybe she'll come back if they slip a little bit. But the stuff that you wrote about and the accusations that have been made against her by American and Romanian gymnasts are not funny at all. Um, And so it's just really interesting how her reputation has been built and burnished despite all of these really kind of horrific accusations that have been made.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been a really gradual process over the course of nearly half a century. I think if you go back and look at the Romanian gymnasts' accusations from the 70s and 80s, the, the stories are horrific. If you get into the 80s and 90s with the accusations from American gymnasts, the stories are shocking and awful, but but not quite as, as hellish as the stories out of Romania And then by the time of the present day, you have this kind of affectionate view of a strict taskmaster. Um, One of the standout anecdotes in the New Yorker profile of Simone Biles recently was that, I think it was after the 2015 Worlds, Simone Biles uh, had... this kind of mild rebellion, I think the writer called it, uh, against Marta's relentless tour schedule, and so Marta relented by allowing the team a twenty-minute walk around Glasgow, and then they went back to the gym. Um, and yeah, that's just kind of a funny story of how tough it is to be an elite gymnast. Um, but it's been a long way from uh, you know the accusations of Trudy Collar and Rodinka Duncan and Ekaterina Zabo from Romania to you know our view of the Corollis today. I think you see the same thing with Bella, too. Bella has become this kind of affectionate, uh, cheerful guy who's jumping up and down and giving the girls bear hugs. But anyone who's ever trained with him, and he hasn't been an individual coach for a while, would tell a very different story.
3: So for folks who are not familiar with the specific accusations, Jessica, Trudy Collar, Radika Dunka, Ekaterina Zabo, Betty Aquino, Dominique Mociano, those are the five women that you cited in your piece. What was the nature of those accusations?
6: So, Tr- Trudy Collar, who was known as Amelia Eberle when she competed at the Montreal Games in 1976, she won two silver medals. She told a Sacramento television station in 2008 that Bella Caroli regularly beat her for making mistakes during practice um, and went into detail about the nature of of the beatings. She said that that Marta would occasionally scratch the girls. She would sink her fingernails into the back of their necks. She would take them by the shoulders and shake them. And KCRA, the station, uh, followed up uh, to corroborate these accusations with um, the Romanian team choreographer who actually defected with the Carolis in 1981 and could have been considered a longtime friend and colleague of the Carolis, uh, 100% corroborated what she was saying. They also spoke to a team nurse who corroborated that the girls were regularly beaten. Mirdinka Dunka, who competed for Romania at the 1980 Games, told uh, just uh, stories that beggar belief about food deprivation, water deprivation, beatings, uh, forcing them to take drugs. And Ekaterina Zabo, who was, of course, Mary Lou Retton's great rival in the 1984 Los Angeles Games, who trained briefly under the Carolis in the Romanian system. I, I just want to read a quote. Um, and this isn't attributed directly to Bella Caroli. She's just talking about Romanian coaches, including Caroli, that she worked with. Um, She said, not to forget that the coaches used to beat us. I lost count of the beatings. I only remember what remained after them. My body was covered in stripes in different colors from red to blue to black. She told a Romanian uh, magazine that in 2011. Um, And, yeah, it's... the, The stuff happened a long time ago, but... Uh, Certainly for me, it colors everything that I see about the Carolis' accomplishments in this moment of great triumph for the U.S. team.
5: What is astonishing to me is that after the Carolis defected, it wasn't a secret in the world of gymnastics that they were dictators in terms of how they ran the program in Romania. How did they ascend to the level of power that they were able to get in the United States? How were... USA gymnastics officials, parents of elite gymnasts, how did they willingly turn these preteen in many cases, right, girls over to these people?
6: Nadia Comaneci, two words, Nadia Comaneci. They were Nadia Comaneci's people. Bella was her coach. And so, you know, any uh, American family with dreams of Olympic glory for their kid is going to say, oh, there's this Romanian world-class coach. He's settling in Houston. He was Nadia Comaneci's coach. Uh, this this sounds great. And, you know, I don't... This,
5: so, so the allegations were not known enough no. in the 80s.
6: No, I mean, uh, Trudy Kolar spoke out in 2008. Zabo spoke out in 2011. I'm sure there were stories. But the other thing yeah. is that, you know, USA Gymnastics just wasn't really on the map, in the early 80s. And I think there was probably some, I mean, I know that there was some degree of appeal to, you know, how, how can we take this you know strictly disciplined system that has worked so well for the Eastern Bloc countries? How, how can we adapt it for American athletes? Um, Mary Lou Retton signed on with them, I believe, in 1982. Um, and it was, you know, just an upward path for them in America from from then onward.
1: There are a few things going on. One is that the Corollis <laughs> certainly seem like monsters. Two is that in Romania at the time, judged against the milieu of uh, mm-hmm. communist dictatorship and probably the mes- methods therein, it might not have been so uh, unusual. Corley had ends with like the Secret Service in Romania. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. Was, yeah. also. I you can't trust NBC to give any sort of fair treatment to this. There's another dynamic going on, which is even though Dominique Machiano came out in her memoir and detailed the Corolli abuses, most of Nadia Komenech and the current uh, five and the last Fierce Five, whatever – They support the Carolis, but this is like asking, you know, Woody Hayes' Heisman Trophy winners, hey, Archie Griffin, hey, Jack Tatum, what do you think of your coach? What about the hundreds of other guys who knew him who weren't as successful? What about the, you know, bodies that were scattered who never made it onto the team? You know, actually, they probably were victimized by him. Gymnastics, women's gymnastics is an odd sport. You know, women's figure skating is odd, too, and it requires a lot of sacrifice. But women's gymnastics, I think more so, I think that the uh, total lifestyle, I think that the delaying because of the sport itself, you know, conspires to delay womanhood. I was just reading uh, a really good book about the weird dynamic of gymnastics, how it's both, these are simultaneously girls and women, but not women, but performing kind of a performative version of women. It's just really very strange, and I think it's very twisted and warped and I also think that the big reason we're not confronting this is that we want these gymnasts and we want, we don't want to know how they were made.
6: Yeah, there, there's there's actually, there's three different strands I want to pick up on what Mike just said. Number one, the corollis, we can look at them as monsters, but I believe that, they were very much the products of the system that created them, and so many other coaches, and that created a world-class gymnastics squad. They were working within the rules of a system um, that had very uh, severe consequences, I would imagine, um, for lack of success, and the Romanian team was certainly not the only one that was overtrained and underfed and playing through severe pain. If you look at stories from the USSR team from the same era, if you look at the story of Elena Mukina from, from the Soviet Union, who um, had a catastrophic accident and became a quadriplegic, it wasn't really an accident. It was something that she said could have been predicted because she was being overtrained and underfed, and you know, made to perform with a broken leg that hadn't uh, healed properly. No story as awful as that ever came out of Romania. So again, this was this was a system that they were complicit in, but they didn't create it. The second strand here, in terms of people having different perspectives on the Corollis depending depending on their level of success. What's interesting about Dominique Mocianu and her memoir, which is really searing on the, on the subject of the Carolis, is that she basically tells the same stories as Betty Okino, who was another Coroli athlete. They say, tell the same stories about performing through severe injuries. And, you know, and these are
3: both Americans, to be clear. Yeah.
6: Yeah. And, and surviving on 900 calories a day when you're also training eight hours a day. Betty Okino is... Philosophical about it, she said, "This is what I signed up for. This is what I was doing. This is what was required of me." Whereas Domin- Dominique Mocianu, you know, s- stops one inch from saying it was it was pure child abuse. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's interesting to see how many you know different prisms, uh, d- uh, different athletes can can see these experiences.
5: You quote Mochianu's memoir and you quote her saying, I actually started to buy into their psych- psychology and believe that perhaps I didn't hurt that much and that the sharp drilling pain in my leg was coming from my head. These are, again, you cannot stress enough that these are, these are preteen girls or teenage girls in a closed environment. I mean there really is a, a captor syndrome that I think happens with the very, very elite um, of elites in this sport,
6: absolutely i mean a refrain that you hear from from different girls, different women, and again you know different women who who have very different perspectives on on their experiences uh, in in these kinds of regimes they will say that they had no frame of reference. This had been their life from a very early age. They didn't know anything else. They couldn't compare their experience to the experience of someone just going to school and going to gymnastics class for an hour uh, afterward. And yeah, I mean, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, the amazing book that came out in 1995 um, by by Joan Ryan about um, women's gymnasts and women's figure skaters makes this point that girls at this age they are primed to please. They want to please right. the authority figures in in their lives. They're not able to question. Exactly.
5: Which of course
3: makes you wonder where the parents are, but the parents have signed into this, signed up for this. This is what they want too. So the other thing that I think abets this, I guess two things are the Olympic cycle where you know, when we watch Simone Biles or, or any of these women, there is the athletic aspect of it and also the performance aspect of it, the, the smiles and the, you know, the, the sequins and, and all of that. But there's also just, in a bigger picture way, all this preparation that goes on for one big show, we're going to put on a really big show, every four years. And so more than other kinds of sports or even other kinds of performances, the entire iceberg is under the water, right? You don't see anything. And it's all leading up to this one big show. And so that must create such strong incentives for the stuff that goes on behind the scenes to be more brutal and more intense because A, nobody sees it, and B, all of the evaluation and the glory just comes down to you know a couple days.
6: I think the, the the most visible way that that we could sense what was beneath the tip of the iceberg in in decades past was how. Tiny and frail-looking and thin, the girls were. I'm always very hesitant about objectifying women's or girls' bodies or talking about, you know, what they look like. But I, I think in this case, it's if you looked at the American team in 1992, it was pretty clear that they were aiming toward the kind of. Frail, fragile ballerina look that was dominant in the eighties and nineties, and, and in the seventies too, uh, in the Eastern Bloc gymnasts who were also, you know, overwhelmingly the dominant forces. And that was sort of one of the kind of compelling but also repelling contradictions of gymnastics for so many years. That you know, the the two main rivals in the ninety two. Olympics, Tatiana Gutsu and Shannon Miller for the all-around, they were both four and a half feet tall and weighed about 70 pounds. And there was a contradiction in watching them. How could such tiny little girls, really, they were girls, they were 15 years old, how could they accomplish such feats? How could they do what they were doing? I don't have that feeling anymore watching Gymnastics. When I see Allie Raisman or Simone Biles or Gabby Douglas or any of the, the U.S. women, they look like strong, powerful women. They're in the mm-hmm. Mary Lou Retton mold of gymnasts. And I think that's been an incredibly positive step that gymnastics has taken. And it's taken that step under the Carolli's, under Marta Carolli specifically. Now, whether the Carolli's just kind of let go at some point about their obsession with keeping their gymnasts semi-starved or whether... Mary Lou Retton was their glimpse into the future, the more powerful gymnast. Um, I don't know, but maybe we should give them a tiny little bit of credit for realizing the error of their ways in that respect.
1: I don't know. I mean, Simone Biles is 4'6", and she's a ball of muscle, and I think a ball of muscle is what it takes to be Simone Biles. I think since it's all turned to... Um, the feats of athleticism as opposed to the feats of quote unquote grace, they're just riding the wave of what it takes to win gold
5: medals still. It still makes me uncomfortable watching gymnastics at the Olympics. And the athletes that don't make me uncomfortable are athletes like Ali Raisman, who's in her 20s or athletes like Gabby Douglas, who has been vilified during these Olympics and didn't perform especially well, and that's part of the vilification process. But there's a recognition there that they are able to make the kinds of decisions, of choices, that I want to keep doing this. Whereas up until you're 19 or 20, you really don't have the ability to make that decision. And clearly, Ali Raceman in the last four years decided, and apparently was shunned by Marduk. Caroli because she didn't think that she was committed enough. And she chose to try to come back to the Olympics anyway and performed, obviously, incredibly well. So there's a, there, there, is that really disc, there is that discomfort in watching the games, but that recognition, too, that some of these women are actually women making athletic decisions on their own, whereas the vast majority of them remain little girls. But they were all little,
1: but Allie and Gabby were those little girls four years ago. And by the way, Gabby didn't perform well. She was the third best gymnast in the world, though not allowed to go through to the individual. And she won a gold as part of the team. So, yes, she, you know, faulted on apparatus. But she performed pretty well. You know, to me, I just think that gymnastics has always existed on the outer limits the extremes of sports and it might not seem extreme like the sports we call extreme sports actually have so much more fun and so much camaraderie and great if you're sean white there's certainly a lot of sacrifice but you know in those like we've talked about this in those x games winter sports there's this uh you know real thrill and real joy in it and gymnastics i think like like um bodybuilding or like oh um some other other sports which take the highest personal toll and require the greatest sacrifice and have 100% injury rates and aren't Team sports, where there's that extra ballast of, you know, your actual teammates who you're striving together for, it doesn't seem like it because of the makeup and the hair and the pretty smiles, but it is the most extreme sport, especially when the participants are the most vulnerable of all the sportsmen.
3: So we should close out with that, I think. But we would be remiss not to mention USA Gymnastics, the governing body here. There was just a recently a big investigation, and the Indianapolis Star about um, sex abuse by gymnastics coaches and how that was really not investigated or seemingly cared about by this governing body. So if the question is, how are the Carolis allowed to operate like this, I think that might be one answer, that the governing body just allowed them to do what they wanted to do so long as you know they won lots of medals. And not dissimilar to swimming and its sex abuse allegations. Jessica Winter, um, everybody should check out her article uh, headline, The Corollis Tainted Legacy. She's Slate's feature ed- editor and she is the author of Break in Case of Emergency. Thank you, Jessica.
6: Thank you so much.
1: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've
2: gotten lucky? Lucky?
3: Confer glory on the Belarusian winner of the men's trampoline, Oleg Hancharu, and Mike um, has some good anagrams for his name.
1: Yeah, I just thought that the trampoline is really dangerous, a hazard. But what you win is uh, unique medal, so that's why his a- name is an anagram for hazard hall unusual coin. Oh, sorry, I like your hazard form hazard hall
5: usual coin.
1: <laughs> I like your nickname for him though. The head hancho. <laughs> that is going to—the head honcho? The head honcho,
5: That's going to ta- yeah. take off in Belarus. Oh, yeah.
1: It's it's world famous in Belarus. What is your honcho I've gotten into many, many more arguments during the Olympics than I usually get into, and all I do is state my sports opinions. But people take special umbrage, or I think it's a special class of arguer that— that comes to the fore? Like if I were to say, I think A-Rod's good. Maybe some people say, no, he's not. And if I say, I think A-Rod sucks. Some people will say he's really good. But if I say Michael Phelps might be the greatest Olympian ever, he's the most decorated, like a uh, Christmas tree, I suppose. And he certainly has the most medals. I don't know if he's the greatest athlete ever, but One reason he has the most medals is because he participates in the sport with the most medals available. That seems obvious to me. That seems empirically driven. And yet I can't tell you how much guff I've taken, either in comment sections or directly, people who find me out and say, you obviously have never swam. (laughs) Okay. So this landlubber, I spend all my time on land counting medals, and they say things like, it is so hard to do what Michael Phelps does. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm just saying that if there are all these different lengths, and at the different lengths, you can do a backstroke, a breaststroke, a butterfly, or a crawl, or what they call freestyle, it would be the equivalent if in all the track lengths, and obviously... There are actually fewer distances in track than there are in the Olympics, but if all the track distances also allowed for not just running, but walking, gallivanting, and sauntering. So there was the 800-meter gallivant, just like there is the 800-meter butterfly. People don't like to hear that. They, there's no
3: 800-meter butterfly. There's no
1: 800-meter. But, if they, there was the 800- There's no 800-meter gallivant. The 200-meter butterfly. People... People don't hear that. It's You don't understand how much it takes. I'm like, I do understand. I'm just counting the medals. They say, well, then why are all these gymnasts high up on the list? I'm like, well, when the gymnasts won all the medals, if you look back at the years they were doing that more than 30 years ago, there were simply fewer swimming events. They've been adding swimming events or actually had during the 50s and 60s. So there went from 7 to 8 to 13, and now there are... 23 swimming events. I know Phelps participates in eight. When you get right down to it, the 200 individual medley and the 400 individual medley, they're pretty similar events. I look back at past winners. It's not, it's not exact, but quite often medalists in one will medal in the other. And that just doesn't happen in so many other events. And track... The, if you're good at the 200, you're usually good at either the 400 or the 100, but it stops there. And sometimes the people who run the distances will run two distance events, but it stops there. And there are no hurdlers who are sprinters. Why? I guess everyone in track is worse than everyone in the pool. It's just one of the sports Olympicsy arguments that I've gotten into that seem to make no sense. But I, I've gotten into them for a few reasons. So here's my, here's my analysis. One, I can't turn down... An argument where I think I'm right. Not a good argument. I can turn down a good argument, but if I really think I'm right, I can't turn it down. Two, the people making the counter arguments are maybe not used to sports arguments. Maybe they're NPR ish listeners who just get upset. Three, patriotism's on the line. So I didn't just insult or advance an idea about some guy who plays on your baseball team, I attacked America. And then maybe four, I attack swimming. I didn't really attack swimming. But a lot of the people getting back to me are like, you know, maybe it's just that I have a couple daughters who swim and they're told they're not participating in a real sport. Hey, listen, I'm sorry about that. But it is the case that there are more swimming medals available than there are track medals available, to say nothing of rugby medals available.
3: Stefan, what is your 800-meter gallivant slash Skip.
5: When is the skipping? The 100-meter skip going to be part of the Olympics. Well,
3: didn't the triple jump used
1: to be called the hop, skip, jump? The hop, and jump? skip, and jump? Yeah, <laughs> it did. It did.
5: Um, the big question after Sunday night's 100-meter dash was how fast is Usain Bolt? And there are a lot of ways you can approach that, right? One way is literally how fast is Usain Bolt? Well, in 2009 at the World Championships in Berlin, he ran 27.7 miles per hour During the 60th and 80th meters of the race, which he covered in, as David Epstein reminded us, 1.61 seconds. So he's pretty fast. Uh, Second fastest recorded human foot speed ever. I'm not sure what the fastest was. I need to re-Google that. Um, Cheetahs run much faster, according to Wikipedia. 62 miles per hour, quarter horse, 55 miles per hour, et cetera, et cetera. But Twitter really tried to answer this definitively last night after the race. How fast is Usain Bolt? And they tried to answer it in a Rodney Dangerfield way. Usain Bolt is so fast. Mm -hmm. Well, here were the main categories of responses that were recorded in the first 30 minutes after the race. Usain Bolt is so fast. When we compare him to other people, Usain Bolt is so fast, he makes other fast people look not fast. Usain Bolt is so fast, he makes fast people look not fast. Usain Bolt is so fast, he makes fast people not look fast, like literally. So that was category one. Category two was Olympics-related, Pokemon-related. So the combination of the Olympic mascot and the Pokemon Go craze. Usain Bolt is so fast, he don't need an app to catch Pokemon. Usain Bolt is so fast, he even caught Pokemon on the track. Relating to the fact that Usain Bolt was carrying around that stupid Olympic mascot for about 20 minutes after the race. Usain Bolt is so fast, he caught a Pokemon at the finish line. Usain Bolt is so fast, Pokemon Go thinks he's driving. People are not very funny on the internet, are they? Third category, social media related. Usain Bolt is so fast, you could almost vine the entire 100 meters. Usain Bolt is so fast, you can record his race on Snapchat. Usain Bolt is so fast, you can film his entire 100 meters in a Snapchat. Usain Bolt is so fast that he tweeted, conducted a Reddit AMA, wrote two blog entries, and updated Facebook during the race. That one's kind of working a little bit too hard to get the social media thing, I would say. Uh, Usain Bolt is so fast, even his hairline can't keep up with him. That was the only hairline-related Usain Bolt joke. Pretty solid effort. On the hairline joke, that's always funny. Then there's the Usain Bolt is so fast that I really can't come up with anything to say about how fast he is. There's no analogy available to me. So I'll just say that Usain Bolt is so fast, it's ridiculous, it's legit crazy, lol, it's stupid. And finally, you have your miscellaneous category. Usain Bolt is so fast that cars are jealous of him. Usain Bolt is so fast, he should run for president of the United States. I don't know what that means. Usain Bolt is so fast Topical coming up, that if robbers tried to Ryan Lochte him, he'd just outrun them. Usain Bolt is so fast, he can think of all the Harambe conspiracy theories in his head mid-race. Oof! And finally, a little Satchel Page reference, which I appreciate for the historical value. Usain Bolt is so fast that he can turn off the light switch in his room and get in bed before the room is dark. If you're going to quote that, though, you might want to just Google it beforehand. He's fast. Usain Bolt is fast. Some people just wrote Usain Bolt is fast. Josh, what is your honcha Hancharu?
3: So June Thomas wrote a piece over the weekend about mixed gender relays. And the thing that was really interesting about it is it's kind of fun as a hypothetical. What would it be like? to have a race where Michael Phelps and Katie Ledecky were you know, both in the pool where one would touch and the other would jump in. Yeah, that would be fun. But she actually makes the case and a persuasive one that this is going to happen in the Olympics. They had that relay, of a very similar one. They had a freestyle one and a medley one at the Swimming World Championships in Russia in 2015. And there are videos. Um, we have them embedded in the piece. It's really fun to watch. There was strategy. The Russians were... The only team that had uh, a man swim at the end of one of the relays and the the Russian dude was trying to chase down the, uh, the British woman. He did not. So that adds a certain element of excitement and fun to it. And these would just be really good for television. I think everyone would want to watch, not just for the novelty factor, but people like relays in general. The swimming relays are, I think, the most... Fun, the athletes get the most excited about them, so why not do more? And there's no reason not to have men and women on a relay team together. There's not really any any logic to it. Um, but the thing that I found strange in her story, so backing up one second, it's not just swimming. There are lots of other sports that are considering adding, you know, mixed relays or or co-ed teams. But the one that's really resistant is track and field, which next to swimming, you would think would be totally natural. You run around the track, you hand off a baton. It doesn't really matter the gender of the person you're handing the baton off to. Again, that would be fun. Again, it would be exciting and people would want to watch. But June wrote the USA Track and Field Spokesman, and it was like this had not even been on their radar. They were like, huh, Like, I don't think that's happening in swimming. I think you're wrong. And she was like, no, pretty sure it happened in the 2015. (laughs) We 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 embedded the the video. (laughs) <laughs> they're like, uh, well, okay, have a great day. But um, you know, this is clearly not something they're thinking about, clearly not something they want to do. Except June discovered this event that happened at the 2014 Youth Olympic Games, which is run by the International Olympic Committee. It's an official sort of deal. So this is how it was described on the website of the IAAF, the track and field governing body. This is a mixed gender eight by one hundred meter relay. The competition featured eight randomly selected, four male and four female athletes across a range of events and all national Olympic committees. Each team had to include at least one athlete from each discipline group, sprints, hurdles, endurance, jumping and throwing. And this, again, reading from Gene's piece. The wedding team consisted of a German shot putter, an Australian sprinter, a 1,500-meter runner from Comoros, a 400-meter hurdler from Thailand, 400-meter sprinter from Venezuela, a Russian triple jumper, an 800-meter runner from the British Virgin Islands, and a Romanian 200-meter sprinter. So this is really fun, cool, like way to go, IAAF. But June pointed out, and I think it's true, like they're not taking this shit seriously. Like... It's fun. And I would really want to watch the 1500 meter runner from Comoros handoff to the German shot putter. It's like all in good fun. But if you look into this race a little bit more, they're like running through the streets of of China. And then all of the quotes from like the IAAF president and from Thomas Bach of the IOC, they're all just like, The idea is to have all of the youth of the world meeting together. And, you know, Thomas Bach says they've experienced what the Olympic spirit means.
5: They have experienced
3: what the Olympic spirit (laughs) means. And so I refuse to give them credit for this whimsy. This is a rare time when whimsy makes me angry because this is like a legitimate thing that could happen. It's not ridiculous. Just like have the fucking like uh, woman Mm. hand off to the man and do it in a serious race. You know, don't, you know, and and I had even called for a couple weeks ago, Stefan, for there to be an event in the Olympics where you have like one person per country compete in every Olympic sport. Mm. I am very pro whimsy. I have a very strong mm -hmm. pro whimsy record. Was
1: was it in an open letter that you called for it? (laughs) It was in this very
3: space, was it not? (laughs) I, I wrote the letter and I read it aloud. But I just wanted to call out the IAAF for ruining whimsy. For making a German shot putter handing off to a runner from Comoros not fun. I resent them for that. They need to have mixed relays and track. And for shame. For shame. I'm going to end every afterball with for shame from now on. For shame! We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at, hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Hang Up and Listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer is Mickey Kaffer. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Liktai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty.